I'm Jason. I am Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award SNL sketch about a family with no arms. <laughs> I like that far better. That's a much more uh, crowd friendly uh, plot than what we have. We are rating and reviewing every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this is episode number 044, A Farewell to Arms. Bye-bye, Arms. We're following up Fugitive from a Chain Gang with uh, the feel-good comedy of A Farewell to Arms. Yeah. I am so looking forward to 42nd Street uh, next week. I I can't imagine why. Um we're having a whole lot of fun with uh, with the bleakest of the bleak. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it tries to kind of have an uplifting ending. And apparently uh, the studios were so concerned about just how bleak it was that they uh, filmed two endings. One explicitly happy and uh, Hemingway was not a fan of the fact they did that. Because A Farewell to Arms, for those listening at home, is, of course, uh, based on his novel. And uh, he was not a fan of this adaptation. Just thought it was too romantic. Um, So he wanted it to be even bleaker. So, uh, you know, thank goodness uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway was not a filmmaker. Because, oh boy, we, we we would still be sleeping off our depressive spell if that were the case. I would actually disagree. I haven't actually read the book, but I was uh, told about it by my wife. (laughs) And I think that maybe going bleaker would have been the direction to go in for this, for the, I guess, the point that Hemingway was, I guess, hinting at. I don't want to get into the whole debate about, uh, you know, authorial intent and everything like that, but I was reading things into it that, um, were not necessarily backed up by what I was being shown on screen necessarily. I was assuming a lot about uh, the good intentions of, uh, of the screenplay, not the, not the cinematography or the directing so much. Um, I'm curious though, now that you've mentioned that there was an even sunnier uh, conclusion, uh, what was the sunnier conclusion that, that she lives? Yep. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, yeah, well, I could understand why he'd be pretty peeved. It's like missing the entire point of the story. You know, this yeah. film was hacked to bits by the censors, actually. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there was apparently like 12 minutes or more uh, are missing from the original one. More of Catherine's labor. And, uh, you know, like of all of the stuff in this movie that would potentially be censored of course it's a woman having a baby that they focus on so uh yeah this movie and i feel like it affects you know because of that this movie is obviously very effective obviously very well filmed but it does feel i guess i don't know if disjointed is the right word on occasion but it does feel like there is a little something missing here or there i can see that for sure um and I would agree. I get what you're saying about it being a little bit disjointed. It's. I don't know. It feels uneven because of, I guess, the way that. I guess these romantic stories were understood at, at the yeah. time specifically, which I think 
Hemingway was specifically trying to criticize, but they 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 just weren't getting it. It's kind of like no, they it, it's it's a it's a joke that they took very earnestly. If uh, if that makes sense, even though it's not a joke, <laughs> I, I kind of see what you mean, though. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's uh, another thing that I notice, and I'm sure I'm far from the first person to notice this, is that it it is kind of a gritty reboot of uh, Romeo and Juliet. And oh yeah, I can see that. And I feel like they they had a very uh, middle school interpretation of of Romeo and Juliet when it came to this, um, of it being just like this fantastic romantic story that uh, that you know is is tragic because somebody dies. Not not right. for not for all the other reasons why it's also tragic. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, there is a whole war going on that is so devastating that I mean, it's I feel like watching these first few years of the these Oscar nominated movies really drives home just what obviously an impact World War One was continuing to have. It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And uh, so I think it just the devastation of it is still echoing in these movies. Right. Um, and unfortunately, a little of that does get lost in the mix because so much is centered around this uh, romance that a romance that, uh, as we discussed, does not always work for us, at least not in the way I think the filmmakers intended. Right. It um, it has some problematic elements. And again, I think that might be because of how romances were portrayed at that point and how they would interpret right. this specific romance. Not that Hemingway himself was kind of a, um, as Cassandra put it, kind of the the poster child for problematic max, uh, masculinity. Um, oh, yes. Very toxic. Uh, it, I feel like the novel... It is a little bit more nuanced than than this Probably, and yeah. and there's a point to it being a little bit off-putting in certain points i agree uh so we're hinting at a lot of different things and uh let me just explain what we do before we get started on the uh, review of the plot in this uh podcast what we do is that we go through the plot and we review it and kind of give our little two cents here and there and once that we've kind of uh summarized the whole plot for you we're going to rate the movie on different categories including acting writing cinematography and overall and then we give the movie a chance for some bonus points on uh costumes and sets boldness legacy longevity and uh technical achievements uh, so with all that out of the way, I think we should get going on this summary so we can actually put our comments that we've made so far into some context. <laughs> no, I like throwing it out all obliquely in the beginning. Really disorient viewers, <laughs> listeners. Okay, so A Farewell to Arms, directed by Frank Borzage, which is the winner, I guess, of our very first uh, Notsker Award uh, with uh, Seventh Heaven. Heaven. And Bad Girl from uh, one of our nominees from, I think, last year. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So, So good job, Frank. 
Um, You're a good one. Directed by Frank Borzage, this first screen adaptation of Hemingway's novel stars Gary Cooper as the American Lieutenant Frederick Henry assigned to the Italian front during World War One. And he is an American within the Italian army. And they don't go into much detail as to why. I guess he just. Yeah, wanted- I mean, it's brought up like, why are you here in Italy? He's like, I just am. Yeah, I can't remember it being very satisfactorily spelled out. I feel like he was studying architecture in Italy when the war broke out and just kind of decided it was oh, the thing that to do. That's probably it. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, if you want to see good architecture pre World War One, Italy was probably the place to be. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, so, what he does is uh, he delivers an ambulance of uh, wounded soldiers to a hospital of the Red Cross um, uh, nurses and kind of like this, y'all, he works for the military. So his job is uh, attending to the ambulance as they bring the wounded off the field. And um, he is uh, bringing some wounded soldiers to this uh, Red Cross hospital. And amongst the nurses, uh, there is the British um, Catherine Barkley, played by Helen Hayes, another uh, famous name. It was very American. <laughs> yes, there's also that. The uh, the British accent is not attempted, I would say. I'm glad she doesn't. I mean, but it does kind of... <laughs> a lot of people thought she was pretty miscast in this, because I guess the nurse is supposed to be a tall British woman, and she is a very, very small American woman, but it's Helen Hayes, so I still love her. Yeah, it works fine. I mean, it it didn't bother me really. I it's I I, no. no, I noticed the lack of accent and then just kind of shrugged and got on with it. Yeah. Um, she and the rest of the nurses are sick of the stifling rigidity of the head nurse, and uh, Catherine offers assistance to a pregnant nurse who is getting transferred home. So the at the very opening we see this kind of regime that the nurses are under of kind of strict moral code. Uh, you don't you don't get involved with the soldiers. You definitely don't get involved with the people that you're treating and you definitely do not engage in premarital relations and get pregnant. But Catherine, as we find out, she's a bit of a rule breaker. She is a bit. And she starts off by uh, by assisting this uh, this pregnant nurse, because as the doctor puts it, she may be the only one among us who is human. Exactly. So, and again, Hayes is perfect for a good human role. She really does radiate that kind of just everyday decency that I think is important here. And she gets the role as the human. She does. Good for it's, her. It's the, it's the role, the role she was, she born, was to, born, born to play. play. <laughs> <sighs> oh, goodness. Meanwhile, Frederick reunites with Italian medical captain Rinaldi, played by Adolf Medju, who was American. American, and I think he did a pretty good job with the Italian accent. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, it wasn't too over the top. Um, maybe a little bit, but uh, it, it wasn't too jarring, and mm-hmm. it wasn't it, it wasn't uh, offensive or anything like that. A frivolous, lighthearted man, Rinaldi talks Frederick into joining him for a night of drinking and seducing. Frederick proceeds to get drunk and maudlin, telling Rinaldi and the leg of a winsome sex worker about his career as an architect back home. So we never actually see the sex worker. We just see her leg as he like 
because she's sort of sitting up on the table and he's just kind of addressing everything to her foot. So an interesting shot, a little objectified, perhaps, but it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, um, and it really it really kind of uh, through the cinematography communicates that uh, he, he really is just talking to a pair of legs. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, the cinematography of this we'll go into later, but it's just beautiful here. And, and I really works well for the story. And I think that establishes him as a character, which we'll see more of in that he really isn't acknowledging uh, the women around him as people so much as mm-hmm. legs, for example. And he sits and he talks about himself a lot. So exactly. Yeah, he's kind of just a big old guy. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. And uh, I think we're supposed to take him that way and not necessarily like him that way. I I mean, I'm torn because I think a lot of the audience was expecting us to immediately sympathize with him because he's a good old American Montana boy, Gary Cooper. But I feel like from a modern perspective, he's a little bit harder to take, at least on the surface at this point. Right. And so that that's what I was talking about earlier in this kind of uh conflict that I have between reading what I feel like should have been read into the script, uh, not not getting really, uh, I guess, what should have been read into the novel, not getting read into the script. And yeah, yeah. And the fact that um, Frederick really shouldn't be admired that much. He has admirable attributes. Um, there are things to like about him, but he's a little bit more complex in that he's he's self-centered and doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't acknowledge a lot of the people around him as people. No, I mean, he's obviously very much in his own head a lot of the time, probably thinking about, you know, the fact that his career was interrupted. He's in a different country with different traditions and customs so you know a little bit of self-centeredness would be kind of understandable then but it's not really something we see him well we do see him grow out of it a bit throughout but at this point it's a little much for the modern audience to take i think oh yeah for sure for sure um anyway yeah um he and the sex worker are interrupted by an air raid. And when ducking under a stairwell, he confuses a hiding Catherine for the sex worker, embarrassing them both, which I thought was a pretty funny scene. He just, uh, you know, Catherine kind of ducks in the shadows and suddenly this weirdo grabs her leg and starts talking about architecture to her foot. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where he it's it's not so creepy because he really does think. She's the sex worker. He was just doing that, too. So it's a kind of meet cute. Yeah, I think it's meant to be. But at the same time, it's in the context of an air raid and uh, sex work. And I think that kind of helps establish the topsy turvy times that everything is taking place in. And um, it it also kind of establishes, again, what I'm thinking is a reference to Romeo and Juliet in that these two fall in love in like the weirdest possible circumstance that yeah. is, that is not conducive to a regular romance. Exactly. I mean, you I guess you always strive to find a little bit of normality, even in the most 
insane of circumstances. And it's obvious at this point, he's an old hand at air raids, this kind of situation. So he just immediately kind of picks up where he left off before it started talking to a lady's leg. And this is just his and the world's kind of new normal at this point. Right. And of course it is uh, her face that we first, uh, that we uh, first see um, in talking to him really. And so it kind of transfers from him talking to a leg. Then now he's talking to a face. Yeah. Good point. So the next night, uh, the two are forced to confront their embarrassment when Rinaldi sets them up on a double date of sorts. Uh, Rinaldi is interested in Catherine and attempting to interest Frederick in becoming his, uh, his wingman. Uh, he tries to get Frederick into Catherine's uh, brooding friend and fellow nurse, Helen Fergie Ferguson, played by Mary Phillips. However, it is soon clear that Catherine is the one Frederick is interested in, and Rinaldi reluctantly gives way. Frederick and Catherine walked and talked together, and Catherine reveals that she has been engaged to an officer on the front, but that he was blown up. World War One, baby. Yeah, and it's a it's a pretty gruesome uh, commentary as well and just kind of like this reality of she became a nurse and she kind of figured that you know maybe he would get injured and it would be uh, this very characteristic like shot in the arm or something like that but since the romantic notions of warfare are getting uh not to use a pun but getting blown to pieces um Mm -hmm. getting blown to pieces is what you get instead instead of like something yeah very like romantic or anything like that it's just gruesome and horrible um so during this conversation frederick starts coming on strong he eventually and problematically overcomes catherine's objections and quote seduces her um this is this was uncomfortable to watch because she does actually say no she um she slaps him and then she apologizes to him, which. Yeah, it's very gross. <laughs> yeah, it is not. Uh, it is not cool when when someone says no, that it means no, especially if they slap you. Um, but. Um, yeah, and he is uh, taken aback when this kind of moves on from the slapping and she allows him to kiss her. Um, he is taken aback and touched by the fact that she is a virgin and he tells her that he loves her, which in, in real life is a red flag. Um, yeah, you're this guy who jumped you, took your virginity without you really having to say it and telling you he loves you. That's a call the police moment, honestly, if they were in regular times. Right, right. And that that's the other thing, too. He She says no when when he kisses her and then says yes and then says no when they do it, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is rape. But I guess they kind of try to pass it off as not rape. Well, yeah, well, they, they kind of use the excuse of the war for everything. Well, World War, you know, this is wartime. So obviously it's acceptable. But it's like, no, it's it's really not. Just moving so fast as well, just kind of this whirlwind rom- quote romance. 
of, you know, oh, I'm I'm now in love with you and I'm also like going to die at any moment. It uh, it, it kind of rekindles that romantic um, that romantic fantasy. And I think it is also a reference to the fact that she had just talked about being romantically involved by this man who got blown up. And so the whole romantic fantasy there got got completely disrupted by reality. And here we have mm-hmm. these two going into a romantic fantasy yet again. Where and, you know, reality, of course, is always threatening to disrupt this because of the war. Exactly. And while they're talking it over with uh, with an unbelieving Fergie that night, Catherine begins to believe that she loves Frederick, too. And And yeah, I think you're right. It's all fantasy at this point for her. I mean, she's got the trauma of losing her fiance and now the trauma of, like you said, basically getting raped. It's kind of understandable. She'd probably kind of go into some denial and shock and believe, okay, because she actually says, you know, I have to love him or else this wouldn't have happened. And it's like, that's definitely the logic of someone who's traumatized and tried to rationalize away the trauma. And that's why the romance does not really always work for me here. Yeah, it's um, it's a problem for sure. And Fergie is kind of the voice of um, voice of reality popping in every once in a while she is um kind kind of moralistic and and we're not really meant to like her very much but she she is correct (laughs) in that in that in reality frederick is bad news and she sees that (laughs) i mean she's a wet blanket on uh on catherine's shock and i think uh her dose of truth is just not appreciated in this setting by anyone and it's too bad because she does speak truth right right Catherine is under the impression that she's in love with frederick and that frederick loves her and that's kind of the the i guess uh wallpaper version of events that they've decided to construct for themselves well put So the next morning, Frederick is due out on the front again, but makes his driver turn back. He finds Catherine and assures her he isn't disappearing on her and that the night before meant a great deal to him, which, you know, I will give him credit for. I mean, if he had not effectively raped her, this would be a lot more effective. But um, she tells him the same and gives him her St. Anthony medal to wear around his neck and they part infatuated. Uh, not plus Rinaldi, who is still obviously bitter that Catherine prefers uh, Frederick to him, talks the English officer in charge into transferring Catherine to Milan because he doesn't like to see his friends head turned by a woman. And obviously, it's funny, uh, earlier on, uh, Frederick says, oh, as a rule, women tend to prefer Rinaldi. And I'm like, looking at Gary Cooper and looking at Adolf Benjo, I'm like, I doubt it. But... <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so far, none of the male characters are really, uh, uh, really much because Rinaldi is obviously kind of a vindictive ass here. Yeah, he he's not our favorite either. Um, he's he's a little bit petty. And, I, you know, you get the feeling that he he does want to be a good friend to Frederick, but his understanding of being a good friend is problematic. Um, for sure. Well, he you know freely admits that he's a that he's a shallow guy. 
So, and I think he wants his friend to be as shallow as him. And the fact that he's taking this like uh, night of passion with the woman so seriously is just baffling to him. But uh, his plan backfires when Frederick is badly injured while eating cheese with his fellow soldiers during a surprise attack, which is, you know, kind of funny, as funny as this context, as it can be in this context. And he's transferred to Milan for surgery. He reunites with Catherine, and they continue to see each other in secret. Touched by their relationship, an Italian chaplain, who is also a friend of Frederick's, played by Jack LaRue, performs a truncated wedding service for them in Frederick's hospital room. I do find the chaplain a really interesting character, and a lot of that comes down to Jack LaRue's performance. I, uh, I had heard of Jack LaRue, but I couldn't really place him. I looked him up, and he was mostly known for villainous roles. Uh, and uh, you can see why he's got a very uh, intense air about him. Very handsome, very good actor. And so I feel like he was very effective in this role, probably because he was used to play darker characters. So he brought a little, a lot of gravity to this pretty small, but I'd say important role as the chaplain. Yeah. He, he does this wedding service again, uh, reference, I think, to Romeo and Juliet in their secret wedding and everything like that. And this oh, uh, sympathetic character in the in the priest who um, you get the feeling that he's doing it partly because they had the premarital relations and and that's, you know, that's a no, no. But you also get the sense that he really just wants things to be normal. He objects objects to the war heartily, which uh, a lot of the other officers kind of tease him for because he's he just basically doesn't want anyone ever to attack and that the war will just be over if everyone just stops attacking each other, which makes sense. It's yeah, actually, it's a little naive, but um, but directly true. So you. You you get him, I think. And I think a, a peace loving United States back in this era would have kind of gotten along with that, too. A lot of the uh, the uh, pro pro peace uh, movement. Um, yeah, I, I respect uh, Jack Larue's performance because he really gets it across that his character has been traumatized, too. Obviously, that even if you are a man of God, it doesn't automatically make you immune to uh, the post-traumatic stress and the shock that comes with this kind of life. And he seems to have really taken it to heart. And I think the fact that LaRue was used to play like, like the villains and the heavies kind of helped him get that across that he isn't just a one dimensional saintly character. He's mm-hmm. struggling with a lot of demons. And so try to do as much good as he can in his limited position. Yeah. And he, he doesn't have all the answers either. So in a traditional anti-war movie, you might have him just be this sanctimonious character that is right about everything. But he um, he has uh, no answer to some of the challenges that he gets of, you know, like we can't end the war unless we attack and and get this over with. And that upsets him, but he doesn't have any answer to that. So it's um, nothing is just simple in this story. Mm-hmm. Which uh, which I appreciated uh, because well, yeah, it is realistic. Nothing, nothing is simple in in war and love. So, anyways, the uh, the months pass by in Milan, 
and Catherine and Frederick are sure they will have an official marriage, although Fergie continues to pessimistically predict that it will never happen. Um, Yes, she really doesn't like Frederick, and you can see why, because in this scene... There's like this puppet show that at first really threw me for a loop because I'm like, because you know the months pass and these like really goofy uh, curtains like they keep getting drawn and everything and you're like, what's happening? And they say, oh, it's part of a puppet show and he's ripping this opera singer who was a soldier uh, who's like, oh, I used to sing what they're singing and he and for like, I know you've said that before and it's just giving him a hard time and for me, he's like, you don't care who you hurt and I'm like, yeah, that's true, but she's treated as the average buzzkill. Yeah, quite the buzzkill and I guess uh, just rewinding just a short bit, it's um, it's his friend, the uh, the captain, the, the doctor captain, Captain Doctor, uh, who who arranges for him to go to Milan as well, just as he had had Catherine sent to Milan. So there's a little ambivalence uh, with uh, Rinaldi kind of going back and forth. And that's like, oh, I want to help my friend be with this girl that he's obviously infatuated with to like, well, I don't want him to be too infatuated with her. So, again, even he is complicated in his motives. I think. Fergie might be the only one who is pretty consistently anti-Frederick and <laughs> de- and pretty firm in her beliefs. Uh, and yeah. she she even threatens to kill Frederick if he gets Catherine into, quote, trouble, which means pregnant. But I'm guessing that's a yes. code thing that they couldn't just mm-hmm. talk about getting people pregnant. Um, yeah, saying the word pregnant was pretty taboo in movies back then. Don't ask me why, but you can say anything else but pregnant, the actual word. With child. With uh, <laughs> child. From uh, a predicament, delicate condition. Oh, yeah. It's a. Uh, it's weird and the, the code makes everything weird and will make things only weirder from here until we get rid of it. Um, <laughs> uh, when the uh, head nurse discovers the forbidden bottles of booze hidden under Frederick's mattress, she cancels his convalescence leave. Um, and there, there are a lot of bottles to be sure. I'm not sure how he slept on that mattress. Um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, and she even picks up a bottle and say, what is this? And it's like shaped like a cute bear or something like that. And it's some sort of uh, drink. I can't remember where it's from. It's some from some country. Uh, you know, to Frederick's credit, he just often says, oh, yeah, that's this and this. Yeah, they come in those cute bottles. Like he when called out. He doesn't he doesn't flinch, try to lie. But I feel like it plays into this, like you said, whole Romeo and Juliet narrative, like all these people striving to keep them apart. And I'm like. Well, he was faking convalescence, obviously. His, like, leave should be canceled. Like, I'm sorry, but obviously taken out of a room that's probably needed by someone who's actually suffering here. Yeah, and it also kind of, once again, plays into his only considering himself. Um, yes. And, and that he's a very self-focused character. And... Uh, Pretty much that's that's the the point of of that scene. It seems like a little bit drawn out for just saying that, oh, his convalescence leave was canceled. But you have to give a reason why. And the reason why is just kind of like this 
this goofball mistake that he made. He wasn't trying to be careful about anything in order to stay with Catherine, even even in his relationship to Catherine. I think that he is selfish. So mm-hmm. and really, when they interact with each other, Catherine, I believe it's at this point, talks about how everything, you know, everything that she is is about him at this point. And uh, she doesn't say it woefully. She says, you know, it, it's supposed to be romantic, but even that is jarring to. And again, yeah, you could read it very much as her transferring all the grief and love she had for her fiance onto this guy who's uh, who says he loves her. It's understandable from that point of view, but I don't think that's the filmmaker's intention. I suppose I think they're trying to like really sell us on the idea they're genuinely in love with each other. And at this point, I don't buy it. I think it's a mix of trauma and lust and transference, obviously. But I mean, Hayes and Cooper do a good job with it. I have to give him that. Yeah, and that's and this is the problem with trying to determine the the directorial intent because I am not yeah I am not sure really because it to a modern audience it seems pretty obvious that no you shouldn't just like subsume your entire being into someone else but that is definitely what Catherine is doing and she says as much and we think that perhaps the director is saying like that's a good thing. And maybe we're a little bit prejudiced because it is an older movie. And we assume that people in older times were not um, as attuned. Yeah. But I think that it's possible that at least Hemingway was was trying to get at that. And it's also possible that that Borzage was hinting at that as well. But again, it's kind of like clearly the producer is wanting the. the happy ending and everything like that. It's just kind of like a joke that they didn't get that they took earnestly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the imagination in filmmaking always kind of stops at the very top uh, where they just want, Oh, this is a romance. We're going to sell it as a romance. Mm -hmm. They don't see or care about the nuance. They just want what's going to get more people in the seats. And so I think the romance is heightened and the whole kind of underlying problems that romance are just kind of, brushed aside, narratively speaking. Yeah, I can definitely see Hemingway's uh, criticism of this, um, if that's what he was going for. If that's that's what he was going for, they should have, they should have maybe made how, how disappearing Catherine, who was, you know, everyone was talking about how, how dynamic and, and the, fellow nurses liked her and saw her you got to see her like stand up for this other nurse who was being mistreated just because she'd gotten with child and after that you kind of see her character basically get consumed by being the love interest of of frederick and you see her kind of disappear and i think it's um it's a testament either to the story or to Barzaj getting that, that she, this is the story of her getting lost while he is, uh, Frederick is getting, um, selfish and just not really paying attention to who she really is. 
And I do think that it would be a very interesting road to travel down, a very realistic road of someone who's intelligent and self-possessed, so lost in grief and shock that she does transfer all her energy into this relationship that is just not, can't be really fully reciprocated by someone as self-centered as Frederick. But instead they emphasize that like, no, it's a true love match. And I just, I think there's a lot of missed opportunities here. And it could be because the movie was hacked to bits by the censors. Very possibly. Um, Frederick bids farewell to Catherine and heads back to the front. And we we hear about this uh, basically almost uh, she's still at the train station waving goodbye to Frederick when we learn that uh, she has plans of her own. Um, Catherine has realized that she is pregnant and she confides to Fergie before leaving her post to wait for Frederick in Switzerland that uh, that she is with child and I guess plans to have the child in Switzerland where I believe Switzerland is neutral at this point. And it's kind of a safe place for people who are uh, deserting, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was a little confused by that. Like, is she just up and deserting? I mean, I don't quite know if, like, the rules of desertion that applied to uh, soldiers applied to nurses as well. But it does seem like, I mean, they probably would have ran her out anyways when they found out she was pregnant. So right. I guess good on her for getting to jump on them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. It just kind of saves her the shame of having to be like, basically have it on her record that she got pregnant outside of wedlock and now she has to be sent home. I mean, it's uh, people were not good about that back in the day. Um, like, yeah, sure. You saved a bunch of soldiers lives uh, single handedly with your nursing. But, uh, you know, you got knocked up. So. Go back home and shame you, dumb slut. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bad, and and the, mm. and to its credit, the movie does present it as pretty bad. Like the movie you don't, does get that. Yeah, you don't you don't treat people that way. <laughs> uh, do that. That's so it's so good. Catherine is waiting for Frederick in Switzerland, and she writes letters to him there. Uh, she lies about the miserable ramshackle room she's living in, talking about how it's a, a veritable palace. And she still doesn't reveal her pregnancy because, you know, that might worry the boy. Um, yeah, exactly. And again, that's a, again, talking to our um, what we've been pointing out is that she has gotten completely consumed by Frederick and everything is about Frederick and his comfort specifically and how he feels about everything. Yeah, I mean, it does not matter at all that she is living in this hole, basically. She cannot bother Frederick with it. So, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Meanwhile, Frederick is stationed in Turin with Rinaldi, the latter who keeps trying to convince Frederick to join him in carousing and womanizing. He really wants a wingman. Yeah, he really, really needs one. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, Frederick doesn't always have to be a wingman, dude. Just go find someone else. Frederick refuses because he is writing constantly to Catherine and, you know, to his credit, wants to be faithful to her. But unbeknownst to him, a bitter Rinaldi is sending their letters to each other back. And so Frederick has no idea Catherine is in Switzerland. So, uh, yeah, Rinaldi really starts to show some true bad colors here. And uh, it's, it's ugly. I feel like this is also a turning point for Frederick. 
where we start to see her his character realize that he doesn't he doesn't have this personal connection to Catherine that he should have and he's writing her letters kind of as he realizes away from her that he hasn't hasn't gotten to connect with her in a way that he should have and since yeah. since she was completely subsumed by him he it's kind of like he missed the real Catherine all of a sudden and I guess that part of that Good is point. is selfishness and that it's like well what about me what about my knowing her but still he is starting to consider her as as you know um as a person and is writing her I feel like at this point because he does have genuine care for her and wants to know how she is and how she's doing and everything like that. So I think that the romantic, the overly romantic story of the movie is kind of now falling into line with, um, yeah, with this better story that I'm reading into it possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, you really do. I think see a shift in Frederick here and it's a shift. I think that does sour his friendship with Rinaldi. So it's, it's, it is good character development. I think on both sides. Mm hmm. So desperate because he hasn't heard from her, he confides in the chaplain that he's deserting to find her, which, yeah, on the one hand, pretty selfish. Like my girlfriend is writing to me, so I'm going to screw the war, screw my duties and just go after her. But it's also a sign of the fact that he is willing to basically court martial himself to make sure she's safe again, which I think is a good way to write a conflicted, well-rounded out character like his flaw, it can be the same thing as what his character development is in a way, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, um, again, nothing is, is super cut and dry again, like, like reality. And I think that's something that mm-hmm. Hemingway is, is known for. Um, and I do feel like in this, uh, in this presentation of the story, you, you do get the sense that he is deserting and it's very clear that it is not out of any personal cowardice or anything like that. Or, I mean, there is a, from one viewpoint, he is being very selfish because he is supposed to be on the front saving soldiers lives. But on the other end, you do feel like since it is in response to him, not getting letters, he has a real concern about what's going on. Um, and hopefully that's not just him being possessive or anything like that. Hopefully it is because he, he might on a certain level know that something is up. And in a way he does still continue in his own way after deserting, saving lives and helping because a macabre montage begins of his journey alongside peasants and soldiers fleeing the constant bombardment. And we see him helping people along Mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of like he's able to see the other side of the war now, the people the war is really affecting, the people who can't fight, the people who are forced to leave their homes. And so he gets this whole other exposure he wouldn't have had had he not deserted, ironically. So it's obviously got a very muddled view of the war, this movie, of like, obviously people back then I think were still very bitter about the war, thinking that it shouldn't have been, and showing like, this is what was really happening, and this is the way the soldier is actually helping, but he's actually not on the front. 
So it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating sequence. Um, you know, there's no dialogue. Uh, Wagner is playing the whole time, which is an unusual choice. Um, right. And but he is, we, yeah, I think it is kind of like a typical movie montage in that, like, you know, mm-hmm. our, our hero develops during this montage and you do see him being uh, more selfless, even as he is doing what is and that's another thing that they're pointing out is that he's doing a very unselfish thing and actually helping a lot of people who are directly affected by the war even if he isn't at the front um but you do see him develop as a character as he's going through this long march and it is not a short montage either it it lasts it lasts a while and it is very effective and borzage uh, should be congratulated for it, really. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like you, I have not read the book. So I have a feeling this is where the bulk of Hemingway's whole philosophy on the war and the heart of his book lies is in this silent montage that uh, uh, really kind of explains just their images, uh, Frederick's development here. Right. He is captured by soldiers in the, the middle of this montage who recognize him. But in the confusion of the bloodshed and chaos, he, he escapes by jumping right into a river, which is very action movie move of his. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he's able to escape their, uh, their bullets. And somehow he arrives in Milan, where he surprises Fergie in her bedroom, which is kind of creepy. Just great. Yeah. A little it- bit. And she, she reacts pretty violently. Um, she vindictively reveals only that Catherine is pregnant and left Milan, but refuses to tell him where. He's forced to leave because the other nurses hear them and come running. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a pretty tense scene. I'm not 100 percent sure why he decided Fergie was the best person to find. It could be that she's the only person that he thought would know. Um well, I think he hoped Catherine would be in there with her, like the oh, baby, uh, okay. roommates, probably. That makes that makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah, Fergie is uh, again. She is the one whose opinion does not change. Um, mm-hmm. And I think at that point, we're really supposed to dislike Fergie because she right. I mean, she hasn't seen his development, but we have. Right. So she is getting in the way of of these two lovers reuniting, and it's especially important to us now that he has been shown to be a a good person at heart and has kind of developed and learned a lot about the reality of things. Yeah, why couldn't she have just known that when he uh, busted into her room through a window in the middle of the night? Yeah, no explanation as to how he just like leaps up to her window either. <laughs> oh, he's Gary Cooper. He has his ways. Um, he is secretly... Superman of of the golden oh, yeah. age where Superman couldn't fly. He just jumped places. Um, <laughs> so uh, Frederick puts an ad out in the paper trying to find Catherine and the, the newspaper ad only says, Catherine, where are you? I am free at last. And the name of the hotel of where to meet him. Rinaldi sees the ad and tracks him down at the hotel. And he tries to convince Frederick to return to the army, but Frederick refuses, telling Rinaldi that Catherine is pregnant. Shocked and guilt-ridden, Rinaldi reveals that she's in Switzerland and doesn't reveal that he's the whole reason why they haven't been getting letters from each other. 
you get the impression that old Frederick isn't the intellectual giant of this movie. He puts this ad out in the paper and without really taking into account that maybe what some of his commanding officers will see it and put the pieces together and arrest him maybe. So he's lucky it's only Rinaldi. And then he calls Rinaldi a good egg and everything for uh, telling him that Catherine is in Switzerland without stopping to think, well, she whiz, how'd you know that? So he's still a very trusting kind of country bumpkin, but uh, at yeah. least he means well at this point. Yeah, a little bit. Um and you you get the sense also that Rinaldi has set everything up for him as well to get him out of trouble. He says like, oh, you know, you, you, we couldn't have told that you would have gotten disoriented and you lost your way and ended up in Milan because it's where you knew where to go. Um, so Rinaldi has everything set up and even tells him like, yeah, we'll we'll arrange it for you to get a medal out of this. Um and again, we see I think that might be a reference to Rinaldi reflecting who Frederick used to be, um, mm. just being very willing to do a lot of work. But it is 100 percent in his own interest. And so even when he's trying to do something nice, it's kind of like, and now, Frederick, you need to get back into the military. All of this will be whitewashed over and you can forget about Catherine. And of course, that is what kind of how you would imagine Frederick might have thought back when he was in his more selfish days. But now yeah. he he is, you know, set on finding Catherine, especially now that he knows that she is pregnant. Um, so later in the meantime, back in uh, Switzerland, Catherine is devastated to discover that all of her letters to Frederick have been returned to the sender and the shock puts her into labor. Which, you know, it's it's movie magic. Um, I don't think that's really yeah, what happens. Right. But um, but yeah, so she she faints at the uh, the post office that she's getting all her letters back from. And um, yeah, that that will put you into labor, I guess. Apparently, and not a particularly good labor because the doctors operating on her become pessimistic about her chances, determining she needs a cesarean section, which, you know, to the, the movie's credit, they actually say the word cesarean section. Yeah, I'm sure that was quite scandalous at the time. Frederick arrives to find Catherine unconscious, and when pressing for information, finds out that his son is dead. He cares more about Catherine's well-being and spends an anxious night at the restaurant across from the hospital, the hospital staff having shooed him away. And I do find it effective that he kind of, you know, walks stunned into this restaurant and sees kind of the the maid, the maitre d is this uh, middle-aged woman and he you know asks her very softly like have you had children what was it like like he's really empathizing with Catherine at this point and of course the mm -hmm. maitre d's like what did you say and he's like can i just have a brioche please um so but he's he's just somewhat in the mindset of wanting to be with Catherine and wanting to share her pain at this point but it really is an example of how his character has grown yeah and um I thought it was also interesting that uh, they specified in the movie that their son was already dead by the time they operated. So that struck me as like, well, that's pretty bold considering the code that you would talk about miscarriage right away. And yeah. I don't know if that was done in um, in preference to a child being dying afterwards or if there were some sort of um 
some sort of a stigma attached to cesareans or or what. But um, yeah, I just I found that interesting that they would very like bluntly talk about how this child had died. Um, but I feel yeah, not with not a lot of sentimentality either. Yeah. And but it but it really drives home that like, OK, so we had the fantasy of the romance and everything like that. But now now it is real. Now it is real and it is not very soft or fluffy. Mm-mm, no. At, at the restaurant, uh, he Frederick prays for God to protect uh, Catherine. And he's barely aware of the news humming around him that an amars- uh, the armistice has been reached. So it's it's kind of ironic that as the world is starting to get better news, his world is starting to crash down. Right. Um, so going back to Catherine, she finally awakes only to realize that she is dying and, and she and she knows this. Um, she has the nurses fix her hair and face before she sees Frederick. Again, I think this is a reference to kind of the facade of uh yes well he's going to be and again it kind of reflects of how she is uh subsumed into his beings like oh well i'm dying i'm going to need to fix everything up so we have this facade at least so that he won't be too distraught um he yeah she's very much more concerned about his perception of her than she is about her own self at this point and I think that is a huge thrust of of the story's point um, mm-hmm. that it, it's and it's sad. It's um, it's unfortunate that we lose her, especially when we realize after the prayer and everything like that, that Frederick does truly care about her at this point and does have a better understanding of what this reciprocal love should have looked like from the entire get go. Um, yeah. When Frederick comes in, they uh, redeclare their love and devotion to each other. He assures her that they will always be together, even in death. And um, as he says this, she says, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, she is. She kind of says like, well, you know, it's it's OK. I want you to be with other women uh, after I'm gone and everything like that. And then don't he, love them like you love me. Like she's like she's kind of selfish too in her own way, which you know she's dying. I'll give her that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of a cute moment. Um, but um, again, there there is this display of how much she she loves him, and so she has like this this vision of him, um, and it. It's in contrast to the whole reality of things, um, but we do feel like there's a more genuine romance growing as as she dies, um, which is yeah, as her time runs out. And um, this the the whole discussion that they have calms her down enough to accept her fate. She dies in his arms and he carries her to the window where the city is celebrating the, uh, the new armistice and the newfound peace. So kind of a bummer of an ending, but really 
really kind of hammers home the the missed the missed opportunity to have a real relationship, which they had just started, I feel like on that deathbed or shortly before. Yeah. And all of it is against this very inconvenient backdrop of the war and things, right. things beyond their control. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, it is very effective. I do think that, they do kind of hammer home the over-romanticism of it, like uh, Hemingway's noted. I mean, you know, as Catherine dies, you know, doves, like, fly in the sky to celebrate the armistice, and he carries her body in this, the long white gown to the bed, the windows, and he actually says, peace, peace, peace. It's a bit overwrought. Uh, so it kind of takes some of the naturalism out of the moment. But, you know, that doesn't mean it's not effective. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a beautifully shot movie and communicates a lot of things very well. Um, other things are maybe just a little bit too ambivalent, but um, mm-hmm. I think we'll discuss that more in the rating. We are. Um, All right. We have discussed this a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a dense movie. I mean, it's not very long. It's an hour and a half, but it's a uh, packs a lot in there. For sure. For sure. So on to rating this puppy. Um, let's talk about the acting. Uh, how would you rate the acting on a scale from one to ten? Um, let's see. I would, I think, be pretty kind to it. I think I'll give it an eight. I do think, you know, Cooper definitely gets better as the movie goes along. He, I mean, he's done, he starts out strong, but you know, is a little opaque, a little hard to read because we don't really know who Frederick is. But by the end, he really does sell the grief and desperation he feels about Catherine dying. Um, Hayes is very strong, too. But I feel like because when Catherine kind of becomes more of like the subsumed by Frederick, everything is about Frederick, it would be kind of hard to play that. And I think, you know, her performance suffers a little bit for it when she has to be the oh frederick type of character but she's still very convincing and i think menju was very good in his role and like i said i was very impressed by jack larue as the chaplain um mary phillips i think gives a very interesting performances fergie fergie who we're not supposed to like but i think phillips is able to find just this her own sense of mourning for her circumstances of being stuck in this terrible war it's predicting what will happen to her good friend because of this man and so i think she's able to add some dimension to fergie that a lesser actress might have just made her a shrill harpy right so i yeah i'd say the acting's pretty solid all around so eight for me what do you think i'm going to uh match your eight and i i feel like everyone just filled their roles uh, perfectly and any kind of uh difficulty kind of came from the difficulty of the of the material that that they were working mm-hmm. with not that it was bad material but that it is very ambivalent material and you can't play this in broad strokes like you normally would in a 1930s movie honestly um right exactly it it it's a romance without being a big melodrama which i think there was some struggle with. Um, yes. Which I think we'll kind of get into with uh, our next category, the writing. I feel like yeah, the writing yeah. wasn't quite sure what it was doing with this and probably got, um, 
probably got messed up quite a bit by by the censorship and just people not getting it. Exactly. I think it's it's what we saw with uh, Cimarron and other adaptations of novels of uh, filmmakers not still not quite knowing how to adapt a novel and hit all points that need to be made. So there is an episodic feel to it that doesn't quite come together. Um, I do think that relying too much on the romance takes away a lot of the bite of the story. So I think I'm going to be pretty unkind to the writing and give it a six. Wow. I'm going to, you were, thinking what I was thinking and I'm also going to give it a six um, largely largely due to the censorship it I mean it's not an easy story to capture from what I can tell I really want to read this book now uh, just to see yeah, if I'm, I'm confirming what I'm reading into it but uh, <laughs> it I mean it shouldn't have been like ham handed with everything that it was trying to communicate. It did do a good job of um, certain points. Uh, It also just kind of undercut itself at a lot of different turns and did make this a little bit too clear of a romance and not, not unclear enough as it should be. It should have been more ambivalent as as ambivalent as it was. I think it, it could have done a better job of letting us know that it's a little bit problematic, this whole relationship that they have. I agree. I think if they had like emphasized the problematic elements instead, straight up, like this is not a perfect relationship. We don't know if these two would have made it to the long run. That would have been okay, but they rely way too much on sentimentality instead of ambivalence. And I think, you know, the movie suffers in uh, because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in this next category, I'm sure they're going to do well. Cinematography. Um, it was. <laughs> if a- I could give it an 11, I would, but I, I, I'm <laughs> going to have to go with 10. Gorgeously shot movie. Yeah, I would agree. Really interesting, innovative shots. Like in particular, when he's wheeled into the hospital in Milan after he's uh, wounded, it's a really unique shot. We get it from his point of view. So the the uh, camera is like lying down on the gurney and we're seeing like the domed ceilings of this gorgeous cathedral that's been converted into a hospital and the doctors and attendants looming over him. And it really gives you the feel that that helpless feeling of being in these strangers hands and just really gorgeous, unique shots like that, that I don't know. They're, uh, they rely a lot on model work, like at the beginning, uh, if you watch that there are models and little cute model trucks to, uh, you know, stand in for the ambulances, but the film work I think feels, you know, was pretty good at trying to give it some kind of illusion. So yeah, very, very good, solid cinematography by, I believe the cinematographer was Charles Lang and, uh, he worked on a lot of movies and you can see why he did excellent work here. Oh yeah. It, it, it's a solid 10 for me as well. Um, just the, the montage was beautiful. The shots that you talked about when he's in the hospital from his point of view, um, it was not, um, the movie was not scared to kind of do some things differently. Um, and 
And for example, it was not afraid to uh, focus up on a puppet show for a while. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is nice and disorienting. I feel like the kind of the subtle artistry that's missing from the script is made up for visually in this movie. Right. And also that is at the height of the relationship between Catherine and Frederick that is at its highest artifice. So we are seeing a grand opera performed by puppets. That's a very good point. It might be a subtle nod to the fact that they're still very much in the honeymoon stage of their relationship where nothing is quite real. All right. Our last category is overall. How well do the acting, writing and cinematography come together for an overall product? Um, it it has some high points here and and some significant low points. Um, but is it, is it like bigger than the sum of, of its oh, parts? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of missed opportunities, I feel, here. So I think I'll give it a seven, which is, you know, not bad, not good. It's uh, it lands kind of in the middle, I feel like, of, uh, you know, great performances, beautiful camera work. Ooh. The writing really does kind of stick out as sort of a thorn in lion's paw here. Yeah, if we could only rest it out of the control of the censors, uh, you really wonder Seriously. what kind of movie they would have come up with. Um, yeah. I'm going to give it slightly higher than you. I'm going to give it an eight. I thought it I thought it was a really good movie. Um, it was really solid. It would have, yeah. It, uh, again, it's... It got really gut punched by by the uh, by the censorship, unfortunately. And yeah, like just leave it alone. <laughs> I know, and it it was a difficult enough movie, I think, to make. Um, the source material mm-hmm. is not easy to work with, I think, in a cinematic cinematic uh, medium, and it was. You know, it, it was difficult enough, and then they had these extra pressures. Um, but it's very different, I feel like, than than a lot of the movies that we have seen. And um, the more and more that we discuss it, uh, the, the less I feel like what I've been reading into it is that far-fetched as intentional. No, I agree. Um, I mean, which is good. I mean, when a movie can be subtle like that, when even constrained by censors, it shows, you know... Very competent hands uh, were making this movie. Okay, so after all of the uh, primary categories, it is sitting at 63 points, which um, that's kind of its its raw score before bonus points. And that matches it up around the league of Little Women, which we've reviewed recently. Um, and this is just counting the the points that... Uh, that are in the major categories. It's uh, pretty close to Henry VIII, which is a very different movie. Um, very different feel. I'd rather watch Private Life of Henry VIII again, uh, just because of the subject matter. Once again, I am definitely the Depression era mindset of like goofier. Give me goofier, less reality, please. Right, and um, that's kind of my experience with reading Hemingway. Is that uh. I've read this. It was good. I never want to read it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's good to be exposed to stuff that makes you uncomfortable, but uh, that doesn't mean you have to wallow in it either. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, So, I mean, uh, the, the movies that I mentioned uh, did get a, a Oscar nomination. So it's, it's not, it's not doing badly. 
it's not doing badly at all. Um, it's it's not you know top of the pack, but uh, we'll see how it does with uh, some bonus points. All right. All right. Our first bonus points category is costumes and set. Um, you could only do so much with the with the material. Honestly, it's uh, soldier uniforms and nurse uniforms uh, that look cool. I guess authentic. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I think for sets though uh, are really what's impressive. You really like the kind of cathedral shots. You can believe that they're in uh, some busted up but still beautiful uh, uh, buildings in in Milan in Italy. Um, I feel like uh, you know it's a nice nod to uh, Frederick's uh, career as an architect, which now that I think about it, is a little far fetched with, with Gary Cooper. Play. I just can't see Gary Cooper as an architect, but that's my <laughs> own limited mindset. But uh, that, that there seems to be some lingering shots of, of buildings and uh, architecture that's very beautiful. And I mean, I think it's especially impressive since most of it was on, uh, you know, sound stages in California. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the, uh, the beginning scene with the little model uh, model uh, ambulances on the little model mountainside is, you know, from our modern perspective, a little more obvious than it was back then, but was still pretty impressive for uh, uh, 1932, 1933. So I will give it a four. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty solid um, and pretty surprising given the. Um, given the subject matter in it just being, you know, Italy during world war one, you do see a lot of thought putting being put into the, uh, into the set, even the kind of broken down dugout where they're eating cheese and spaghetti before, (laughs) before Frederick is, uh, unfortunately injured. Uh, it, that is a great scene that we didn't talk much about. Just a little bit of almost Marx Brothers like uh, uh, comedy in the fact that uh, these soldiers, while all this bloodshed is going on, are just eating big blocks of cheese and like just plain pasta that they're just shoveling into their mouths. Just a very real moment in that you know can't help but be a little bit of funny, even in the circumstances. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like that was a great like set that they had and they put some time and thought Mm -hmm. into that. Um, And, you know, there we'll get into it with technical, but I think it was pretty uh, technical triumph, I guess, uh, or success that they, that they had a lot of these bombing scenes and uh, things falling down that looked real and, and didn't feel like just sort of fakey. Um, But uh, yeah, and even even the effect with uh, with the little model cars, I mean, I found it convincing enough. Um, it yeah. was it, it wasn't bad. You you would only notice really if you were looking for it and used to seeing that sort of thing. Um, exactly. The so I, I'm also going to give it a four. So we have double fours for costumes and set. And that brings us up to the next category of boldness. Uh, mm-hmm. It should have been a five, but it, it, it isn't. It should have been. I mean, I, especially since they went ahead and filmed two endings to be more of a crowd pleaser. Again, I can't blame the filmmakers and definitely not Hemingway who hated it. I, uh, we're, we're looking squarely at the uh, 
at the heads of studios here. Um, so unfortunately, because of that, I think I'm going to have to give it a three for bold. I mean, it still does earn a few points because, you know, they do portray uh, pregnant, you know, women in these circumstances who get pregnant very sympathetically. Um, you know, there is a lot of talk of uh, blood and guts and all that with the war. So there is, it is still bold. It just could have been so much bolder if the censors had just leaving it alone. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, again, the censors really kicked this one in the teeth. Um, we are very matching on on this rating. We have disagreed on only <laughs> one rating so far because I'm going to also give it a three docking two points. Uh, I would have docked one point if it were lightly censored, but I'm docking it two because it makes the movie feel disjointed. Um, but it did. Yes, it, it does did, affect the quality. Mm-hmm. It did make a lot of bold moves, I feel like, because it is bold material that they chose. So, I mean, it's it's pretty bold to try to take this on, I feel like, in the first place. This story just doesn't seem like, ah, this is very going, cinematic. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like this is going to be box office gold. I do wish they had gone farther in portraying that the relationship wasn't very healthy. I feel like they do fall too much on the line of, no, they are Romeo and Juliet. They are star-crossed lovers. We're like, it might be also just kind of a sick codependence going on there, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it definitely, I feel like if it had just been made later, it could have been bolder than it is. But, you right. know, they do sneak in as much as they can on the boldness scale. Right, right. Uh, so, our next category for bonus points is Legacy. Um gosh this um, this is your category to shine because i y- you have more knowledge of this era than i do how how does a farewell to arms impact later movies you know i can't say at least from my opinion and listeners you may disagree i don't think it had a huge impact i don't think it was a very big hit when it came out mm-hmm. uh which of course doesn't really have much to do with with legacy uh, in and of itself. Um, I think, you know, it, it was good for Cooper's career, but I don't think uh, it really was the kind of role he continued to play. Um, although he did, he and Hemingway did become good friends years later and Hemingway insisted he play the lead in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm. So, but again, that doesn't have anything to do with the farewell to arms because Hemingway hated this movie and he and Cooper apparently never talked about this movie. Um, so I, I, I know I'm not going to really hold it very high for, for legacy. I think I'm only going to give it a two. Wow. Matchy, matchy. Um, I'm giving it two points as well, partly because there, there are future, a farewell to arms is right. Or am I? Oh yeah. There were, there was like a version with rock Hudson and Jennifer Jones in the forties. There was a version with, a. uh, Vanessa Redgrave and George Hamilton in like the 70s um, and I'm sure there have been like TV versions made or, or what have you so I mean I don't think that this is like the definitive telling maybe of the, of the I think it's probably the most well-known adaptation so you know I think I think two points is fair yeah I mean I'm, I'm giving it for that I am also giving it because I'm pretty sure that all this gorgeous cinematography um, impacted people afterwards um oh that's a good point the, yeah. the point of view shot 
alone is I don't recall. I'm sure it's been done before, but I don't recall it in the movies that we have watched. And it was just incredibly effective how they worked on it. Um, yeah. And, and like I said, cinematographer Charles Leg went on to have a very long career. So this probably helped him a lot in that regard. So, yeah. Um, but of course, um, uh, Hayes and Cooper both had a pretty established uh, careers at this point. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Hayes was considered miscast uh, because she was not British or tall, <laughs> like the, the the book called for. So I can't say this is really a boon for her career wise. Um, it didn't hurt, but I also don't think it helped particularly either. I guess it also has a, the legacy of um, of pushing Hollywood a little bit into mm-hmm. doing things that aren't necessarily going to be box office gold. Um True. It um, so we kind of have it to thank for probably a lot of our favorite movies that were not were not guaranteed anymore, and I wish, um, I wish we had more of. So yeah, good on you at Farewell to Arms. Great movie. I can see why it wasn't again beloved at its time. Probably no. <laughs> um. So speaking of of its time. Uh, our next category for bonus points is longevity. How well does this stand up over time? Um, Ooh, I have such no, kind of like. Mm-hmm. There's no racism. There's also no, only I white mean, people. <laughs> only white people. So, I mean, I think obviously got to take some points off for the portrayal of the relationship between Catherine and Frederick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of screwed up gender roles there. Um, And uh, yeah, I think it's, it is more grown up than a lot of the movies of that time. So I think a modern audience would appreciate the lack of condescension when it comes to portrayals of pregnancy and uh premarital sex and what have you but again i the romance starts off on such a rapey note that it's kind of hard to get over that so honestly i think i'm gonna be real real mean give it a i'll give it another two <laughs> no so not real real mean i was gonna say one but i think i'm gonna give it two just because it is a really well-made movie that i think doesn't isn't really dated when it comes to the filmmaking i think just just the content I think is kind of jaded. Yeah, I can see that. And I completely understand your, your low score. I'm going to actually give it three bonus points. Um, mainly because I do feel like it does feel very modern. Um, mm-hmm. even, even with the censorship and even with all these things kind of getting in its way, uh, it's, it still feels like it's out of its time and also out of any particular time itself. The the gender dynamics, I feel like would have been handled differently in our day and age, hopefully. Um, Hopefully. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it, it does really capture this kind of false, this this narrative that is timeless because again we've been talking about Shakespeare you know centuries before of this this 
lust romance that doesn't quite work, but we all are made to believe that this is how romance should work. And this kind of goes with this timeless um, pointing of things out, I guess, uh, this this timeless um, revelation that things are just way more complicated. And then it adds on this layer of the war, which uh, is this thing that happens that is out of anyone's control and no one really understands how to end it without attacking as the uh, priest kind of rings up and it um i don't know it it has it has longevity in that its lessons and points are still relevant i think that the longevity Kind of, I think you've been pointing this out, kind of goes up and down. Um, I feel like this movie feels like it belongs in a kind of um, maybe in the era of the 1970s almost of just kind of this. Yeah, that kind of disillusionment after Vietnam. Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. This disillusionment with romance. Yes, exactly. We suffered more than we've suffered before, and we feel like nothing good really came of it. And so, yeah, the kind of raw feeling you get from post-Vietnam era films, I think we're getting here for post-World War One. Okay. Now we're on to its last chance for bonus points, uh, the technical category. I feel like it did a pretty good job here with uh, the mini explosions. And a mm-hmm. lot of what it must have been pretty difficult shots um, for yes. to bring that cinematography to life. Uh, yeah. I would like to give it a four or five. Um, I think I'm going to go, you know, I've been pretty down on it in a lot of categories. So I think I'll make up for it and give it a five here for the reasons you state. Yeah. I mean, it, it has to um, it has to get that full five marks because it it does feel real. You do get this sense of um, which is also crucial to the plot. You know, a lot of the times when we talk mm-hmm. about technical stuff, it's not crucial to the plot, but the explosions and the wreckage falling down and everything like that, that feeling real is crucial to kind of bringing this romance back down to reality. And I just, I agree. I don't think it would be as effective if it felt fakey or, um, or just didn't work. Um, Yeah. Good point. So uh, counting up the totals, it gets a total score of 96, which puts it one point ahead of lady for a day. And two points okay, behind, uh, two points behind Little Women. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, I'd say when it comes to uh, cinematography, this definitely trumps Little Women, could, which could maybe be a little stagey, sort of, uh, artistically. But I feel like Little Women does a better job with the, at the adaptation and the character mm-hmm. work, maybe than uh, than here, but. Yeah, um, a lot of that is the source material too, though. Um, a lot of that is source material, yeah. And so, uh, of course, not our, too bad. Farewell, arts. Yeah, of course. Our final question for this movie is whether or not we are going to nominate it for the prestigious Notsker Award, the Movie Award Podcast Movie Award for movies. Uh, 
And you know, I yeah, I've grown more impressed with it the more we've talked about it. I have to say, I was a little waffly before we started, just because I do feel like the sensors, the writing, really did let the material down. But you know, I think I am going to have to have to give it a nom in the end, because it still is a very powerful product, and the acting and the cinematography real really do like bring it to the next level. What do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely going to uh, recommend it for an Oscar myself. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm worried about reading too much into it. That wasn't really there, but I feel like I'm reading into it. I feel like I'm reading into it stuff that they were trying to put in and was only muffled by, by censorship. Um, Yeah. And I, I think even if it wasn't really there, the fact that the movie inspires us to read it into it means that it did have something going for it, that mm -hmm. it did have us thinking. And I'm just thinking back to the like the very purposeful shots. There's uh, that's the sense that I get from this movie that nothing was done just to have it there. Um, the puppet show wasn't there just to have a puppet show. It was it was there to kind of <laughs> highlight this this subtly um, the fact that this is kind of a fakey thing going on. Um, yeah. Or there's the they're going through the motions of, of being madly in love and being in this perfect relationship when both of them know that who knows if this will last outside the war and who knows if I'll last till through tomorrow with the way things are in the world right now. Yeah. So, wow. We've gone for quite a while. Um, we're close to 90 minutes now, but I think it was hey, an interesting, wow. it was an interesting discussion and an interesting movie that prompted uh, a discussion that lasted as long as the movie almost. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, that that's good. That's good. Um, just, uh, some, some housekeeping here. You can contact us at, uh, come back a star on Twitter, or you can email us at come back a star podcast at gmail.com. We've gotten a, a couple of emails from you guys and we really appreciate it. We really love the, um, the, uh, the affirmation and also the, uh, the tips that we've been got getting as well. We've, uh, actually put some into, into practice as well, like putting, our episode names before the name of the podcast and the titles. Um, hey, so so you go. can actually see it when you start the, uh, the podcast. Um, hey. So uh, really appreciate that. If you want to reach us, reach out to us, you can also do so on Facebook. If you search uh, come back a star in the little search function on Facebook, you'll probably find us. Um, we are not great about Facebook, but uh we will try to do better. Uh, <laughs> I, if you have enjoyed this podcast, I definitely hope that you will uh, share that with other people as well. Please do. Any, uh, any last thoughts, Laura? Um, you know, if you're not in the middle of a war zone, there's no need to rush a relationship. Um, don't be pushy. Uh, and even if you are in a war zone, also try to be realistic and uh you know if, if you get in trouble uh have a friend like Fergie by your side who's willing to kill for you that's uh that's pretty boss mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise uh yeah uh don't censor yourself everyone don't censor yourself yes don't censor yourself unless it's being polite um <laughs> yeah <laughs> It depends on who you are. Some people don't censor yourself. Other people, why don't you go ahead yeah. and censor yourself? Consider uh, consider uh, being quiet for once. 
Um, yeah. You and, change, why don't you? And with that, I am going to uh, turn off this projector, draw the curtains, and bid you all goodbye. Bye-bye.